0: Out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Well, that sounds very exciting, doesn't it? Thank you, Jim. Hello, welcome. This is David Eastall. This is the C86 show. Once again, bringing you the finest in indie pop from the golden decade and sometimes beyond. This week it is beyond because I spoke to Graham Kemp, one-time member of Urusai Yatsuru, who I spoke to about a month ago to find out more about life, love, poetry, and all that other groovy stuff. This is the interview. Enjoy it. Make notes. I might just test you at the end just to make sure you're paying attention. Anyway, this is it. And uh, just enjoy. Turn up your stereos. Graham, save the next 50 minutes from utter boredom. This is the first part of the interview, the only part where I spoke about the early years. It was a classic introduction.
1: Take it away, Graham. It's like that book, A Scene In Between, if you've seen that one. It's kind of um, seems to capture a little bit. It's like a kind of a kind of subset of kind of music at the time that was maybe you you were really into it if you were there but if you weren't why would you know about it you know the kind of pastels and the wedding present all those guys went on to become successful uh, I suppose but uh, very much the kind of kids who were kind of massively into the um, you know the 60s kind of pop music and this kind of resurgence 20 years later that always seems to happen is uh, definitely the kind of music that I was into when I started kind of getting seriously into buying singles
0: Yes well absolutely so is it possible to get a bit of a a sort of a background then to start to to find out your own sort of musical journey because because you're going to be so much younger than me because mostly people people have sort of like kind of, oh yes we watched we were watching the same programs and listened to the same bands but you probably came along a bit later because you you obviously you formed the band in the early 90s and would have listened to all that kind of indie stuff on the John Peel show and the NME stuff that they were promoting um, during that period thinking I might be in a band but but what you what did you grow up listening to musically?
1: Um, well, well, I was saying this the day actually the, the first LP I remember listening to from start to finish was the Human League's Dare Right, uh, and this was probably quite a few years after it came out almost um, so I kind of borrowed it from a pal at school and I, I think I was you know, in, in secondary school by the time um, I, I listened to it so it was a wee little bit after time it actually came out but um, he, he just happened to be very much into that and uh, I thought, oh, I'll have a listen to that Um, I think beforehand when I was like a child The only thing I really listened to was kind of uh, These Disney kind of soundtrack albums You know
0: Classic Yeah 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 I
1: think that you know I kind of quite obsessed with sitting with the headphones on Just listening through to these things But um yeah really uh, that that kind of dare album opened up a kind a of few more doors, just thinking like oh the you know the the sounds you know the production of, of actual kind of uh, proper tunes in your in your headphones really good. I have to sit in in, in the back half of the room so that uh, I didn't disturb uh you know the the rest of the family watching t v but I just have my headphones on just being lost in this little world
0: and were you sort of in a community of people that there were quite a few people who who were sort of I don't know, Listen to the sort of similar music that you were intrigued by. I just wondered if you were sort of, um, yes, that that was kind of a scene. Because certain people, you know, who grew up either in Manchester or Bristol or Brighton, Glasgow, you know, were like, oh yeah, there was all this music and people in bands and stuff like that. I'm from Norwich. We didn't really have a huge music scene in Norwich, I have to confess. It was a bit thin on the ground.
1: Mm. Uh, well I, I grew up in Inverness, so so I, I didn't really get back down to Glasgow where my family's from until I was about 18. So um when we were growing up in Inverness, my pals were kind of into very much uh kind of kind of like what, first or second wave of, of goth music you know, um, bands like kind of um, Alien Sex Fiend, you know, the, the, the Mission, The Cramps, you know, all sorts of things just stuck into that one big category. Everyone had spiky hair. And, right. Uh, I would love that sort of stuff. But it was probably a little bit later than, than everyone else was into it because by the time these things get up north, you know it's been at, at walking speed really yes so, so we were a little bit late into that you know and uh, we all want to kind of uh, look like Ian McCulloch and uh, you know listen to this kind of um, you know the mission or something like that you know that's what all my pals were into I, I hate the mission I really hate <laughs> I got dragged to three different kind of uh, gigs uh, watching the mission and I never liked any of them
0: right so, uh,
1: yeah I, I was kind of more into kind of um the kind of cutie scene, maybe kind of like uh, Tula Gosh and the Pastels and kind of uh, really sort of guys with fringes and anoraks. You know, that was my big thing. You know, I kind of loved that sort of stuff. And gonna uh, like, you know, come 80s, 90s, I would like, buy, you know, Sarah Records singles and things like that. But, oh, uh,
0: right. So this is yeah. much different than your sort of kind of that um, power chord. Uh, yes, goth rock that we loved from the cult to, yes, the mission and Gene loved Je- Jezebel and people like that.
1: Yeah, I guess I was kind of, I liked the kind of pop end of things, you know, like kind of um, like The Cure and Jesus and Mary Chain was a, a massive album for me. Uh, my, my kind of um, sense of buying music when I was, uh, you know, quite young after the time of discovering the Human League, you know, I, I kind of got seriously into kind of terrible prog rock records. Uh, basically because they were sold cheap in Woolworths yes. So I would go and buy a record for about 250 So I'd kind of go buy a, like a Genesis record or a Steve Hackett or something kind of crazy like that And my whole kind of uh, idea was if, if anyone uh, likes the kind of music uh, Then I, I can't be into it, I've got to get something different
0: Well absolutely, so, that would have, absolutely. well it was quite interesting Because I'm at that age where I wasn't into prog rock because I was too young But I had an older brother who was seven years Older than me. And um, yes, he was really into prog rock. And being very, I don't know, curious when I was about 12, 13, I used to sneak into his kind of room and listen to these records when he wasn't there because he'd forbidden forbid me to sort of touch them. So I, I sort of became obsessed with Genesis, yes, Wishbone Ash, Barkley James Hobbs, even the solo work yeah. of people like Rick Wakeman. I do know a Steve Hackett album really well because it just had a great guitar line on it. But then, you know, then you get to about 16 and think, God, this is a bit complicated. And then and you start hearing punk and yeah, the, yeah uh, exactly. yes um echo and the bunny men and then obviously the smiths and you think oh right okay i'm I'm going to leave all that kind of rather complicated tells of traffic um tells of topographic ocean behind
1: yeah well i had my own little kind of punk rock kind of moment you know you know bit to uh, 10 years after with that you know listen to kind of like uh genesis albums and going oh it's fiddly kind of uh Moog kind of lines and then basically there's uh, You Trip Me Up and it's like, oh my God, what was I doing wasting my time with yes,
0: this, this, is this song
1: that's like the entire length of, a, of an LP side. I think I'll just basically uh, learn how to play guitar with uh, an E chord. You know, that's uh, made it kind of doable. In that's some right.
0: Way. Yes. And were you, um, were you kind of aware of all those kind of early Scottish bands and the, the famous Scottish label 53rd and 3rd of records you know with the, you mentioned the pastels but there would have been before then bands i suppose like the skids and big country and then Sw- strawberry Switchblade, and then all the other indie bands like the orchids and jasmine Minx.
1: Yeah, um, well, we used to go to Glasgow uh, to 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 buy records and sort of see gigs, you know. So we'd go and see the Jesus and Mary Chain uh, in the Barlands, and, and you know, go back, you know, on, on the bus, that sort of thing. Um, but we uh, we we'd just go into kind of like the record shops and buy fanzines, you know. So we'd kind of like have, um, you know, all the kind of like Splash One kind of fanzines and things like that, and the little kind of uh, you know uh, flexi discs. So I'm um, I'm pretty sure I've got some of them sort of sat at home, like Jasmine Mink songs and things like that, and. Um, yeah, it's one of the things we never did is we should ever put out a flexi-disc, a lovely flexi-disc, they're great. They I
0: know, put, they yeah. are, they are just amazing. And I know that Cherry Red Records has been sort of hoovering up all these little indie bands and that compilation. So they did one on the C86 where they put it out as a triple CD and then they did the C87, 88 and 89. You can tell that they must have been big sellers in the Cherry Red Record label kind of roster. So, um, yes, for run um, people who like to archive material. And they did include quite a few flexi-disc singles which had been really uh, tricky to uh, uh, track down, which was cool. So then as, as we trucked through the 80s, which you obviously weren't in a band but having spoke to a lot of people from who'd been doing their five years of being in an indie band One thing that knocked them out, because I put indie pop down between the years of 83 to 87, which is the years of the Smiths, I realised. But then when they finished, it felt like the party had slightly finished, kind of come to an end. And a lot of bands who had been around that period pretty much called it a day around them for various reasons. A, they became to hate each other within the band and then they, they hadn't made any music uh, money. And the other thing is the music scene changed and there was the dance scene and ecstasy and unless you were going to become like the Soup Dragons, the Stone Roses, Happy Mondays, basically playing jingly-jangly records wasn't going to work anymore so they kind of gave it up. So during that period were you sort of slowly f- thinking about forming a, you know, a band?
1: Well I, th- I think it's always something in the back of uh, of her mind to do but um I, when I was kind of up north really there wasn't kind of really much of a kind of space to do that sort of thing um i I, I guess um my kind of tastes were changing at that time as well from from things like the kind of uh, kind of pop kind of like Echo and, and the cure stuff that we'd be buying uh, I kind of got really into um bands like kind of sonic youth and uh, pixies things like that because that, that was kind of coming through. I mean, we kind of got that kind of, um, everyone bought that Downstone Jr. like Bug album and from then on it was all kind of really about kind of noisy guitars, really.
0: It was. We loved that album so much. And there was all, I don't know which one had the fantastic record label. I mean, it it sounds probably bad to say it, but there was the young girl with the cigarette in the, in the mouth.
1: Oh, yeah, Green Mind or something wasn't it Yeah,
0: Stunning, it was a great great album But a great cover um, So yes, and then obviously Ecstasy came along, then Grunge Which obviously knocked out other bands Because no one was going to be able to sort of replicate that Without feeling self-conscious and silly You formed in sort of early the early 90s Without realising Britpop was around the corner So when did the band When did you sort of find that You had the band
1: um, I think We started Pretty early. I think I think we've got kind of official start date in like 93 or something like that. But we probably were messing around from, you know, 92 kind of onwards. We just basically um, had a, a rehearsal room and, um, you know, went to kind of like do some practices. And the only reason we ever kind of got gigs is because um, Alex uh, had uh, the 13th Note Club. And, and he was pretty free and easy with kind of booking bands. It's just like, yeah, you know, come one, come all. You've got a band, come and embarrass yourself. So we had a kind of stage to actually play on.
0: Yeah. So I think
1: we were just only playing there pretty much to start off with. Uh I think I think it was before it was called the Kazoo Club. Maybe uh, maybe 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 it was always called that. I don't know, but we we just kind of basically spent our Tuesday nights there um just seeing lots of terrible bands. Uh the, the odd good one. Uh and I just felt like oh we could do this. As long as we don't kind of like call ourselves something like radio something or something head or baby something all, all, all bands of the early 90s were called that you know it's a variation of the radio head name but uh, we, so we, we just basically kind of threw something together and uh, had a, a succession of drummers who just kind of popped in for like one show uh, and then went but uh, we had one night where we were sat there and uh, it was a space basically, you said, uh, you know, Alex said, oh, do you want to play? We, the, well, the band's kind of like pulled out. And we thought, oh, yeah, why not? Let's do it. But, you know, me and uh, Fergus and Elaine were there with uh, Elaine's brother, Ian, and he'd never played drums before. And he thought, oh, come on, just do it. Why, why not? Um, so he we just went up and did a, a short set. And it was the first time Ian had ever heard any of the songs. He just drummed along. So you can tell what kind of how kind of free and easy it was in the thirteenth note. It wasn't really kind of uh, overconsidered in any way whatsoever. No, so, uh, yeah, we we kind of felt that was fun, so we just carried on doing that.
0: So you were sort of channeling the spirit of some sort of garage rock band from the late '60s, really, weren't you? The Stooges meets I don't know the Sex Pistols.
1: Pretty garagey. I think I think we had a very much of a kind of um, kind of. Cutie kind of influence At the same time as well We were doing lots of Kind of quite uh, Twee songs as well But uh, you're not taking it Like too seriously
0: Yes Because I I sort of I remember speaking to It was Fast Eddie from Motorhead Who When they sort of Had the the famous You know Line up The three of them With you know Phil Taylor and Lemmy He said it took Quite a few years For them to sort of Create a sound That was going to sort of Make them do something more than just playing in front of their friends' family and anybody they can emotionally blackmail to um, sort of go and see them and you know the local pub, but once they suddenly clicked, it sort of started to happen. They you know did three amazing albums. Did it take a while for you to to sort of think okay this is this is going to be you know someone will want to hear this beyond our sort of usual little sort of group of friends
1: yeah, yeah we we never had any plans of becoming like a big proper band. Um, that was our exact phrase that we used, you know, these big proper bands we were quite a little bit contemptuous of, you know, guys who would come into the 13th note and, you know, do an encore. And it's like, oh, come on, guys, this is a pub, you know, get, get your act together. But um, we, we um, ba- basically just wanted to do it in a very kind of shambolic, kind of non-serious sort of way. But o- over the kind of couple of years, I think we were, we were doing that, we started getting more and more gigs around Glasgow. And uh, basically, we would write two or three new tunes per, for every gig. And so we went through quite a lot of uh, stuff and just got, got a bit better and better. Um, the whole kind of story of it was just kind of getting Fergus to start writing tunes because it used to be just me.
0: Yes. And,
1: uh, when he got into it, he's actually a really good guitarist, you know, and I'm just basically I just bash out kind of like the most simplest chords. And uh, my perfect guitar has only got two strings in it, really. You know, so so that was kind of kind of my approach. But um, once we kind of got him writing songs, so we got better and our, our, our tunes became more like the kind of stuff we were listening to. just like kind of dinosaur junior albums and Sonic Youth albums, things like that. You know, that was, you know, when we kind of heard pavement as well, we were just going, oh, these guys are doing exactly kind of what we want to be doing. Uh, and it was kind of, just thought, well, yeah, if they can do it, we can do it too, why not?
0: Well, absolutely. And, and obviously I sort of didn't take it, you know, I was kind of obsessed at the time listening to John Peel and I never listened to it live or listened to him live. I'd always, you know, put a cassette in you know, my trusty d and, 90 and sort of record probably 45 minutes in the evening and then listen to it for several days afterwards to digest all the incredible sounds. I mean, he was such an amazing gatekeeper. I mean, getting a play on John Peel would sort of get you noticed around the country if not in Europe as well and obviously he was a major influence in sort of your sort of kind of I suppose career progression as a band as well wasn't he?
1: Yeah yeah very much so I think we we kind of um, got to uh, he got to see us I guess like uh, in the 13th Note when it was a I think it was a Glasgow Sound City event or something like that this must have been 93 or 94 or something I can't remember the exact year but he was up with uh, John Waters going to see bands we, we, we were actually playing a, kind of like an off-Broadway style gig on the thirteenth. note it, it wasn't really part of this um, effort at all but Alex had put this on uh, and he'd, he'd heard from somebody that, that John P was going to be coming so he said "Oh, hang on a minute wait till he gets here so we kind of just basically like um, you know went off and came back on again and did a couple of songs when him and John Waters came in uh, and uh, he got to see the last couple of songs in our set basically and he, he just we just started talking to him and he offered us a a appeal session there and then and said come in and speak to us like tomorrow about the about the fanzine so we, we did a, a, a fanzine called kitten frenzy as oh, well
0: oh, right, yes. so
1: um, he had um, I think he'd heard us because I'd sent him a cassette of our kind of first kind of little demos and um you know, so basically when I went in the next day and kind of we, I, I took along a copy of this Kazoo Club album that Alex had put together, like a live album that he'd done on vinyl. So I took that in and I'd made a special cover for him and uh, we went in and kind of talked in the uh, the BBC studios uh, in Glasgow. And uh, again, I kind of um, felt as though I kind of almost made him offer us a, a appeal session on air. So we thought we had this taped so we can't go back in this. Excellent. Uh, uh, and then he kind of just took the um the, the record out the cover and just kind of put our track on it and played it and that's like oh I was, I was hoping to god he played at 45 or something just to be absolutely perfect <laughs> I, I could i could dine out in that story forever yes so he played it at the right speed which is a little bit unfortunate it's not our best ever song but you know it's okay
0: yeah absolutely and can you remember much about your john peel sessions that you did
1: well the first one he actually arranged for us to do it in Savas studios in glasgow because we, we basically said look we don't own any of our equipment we've got like a guitar reach or something but we don't have anything as complicated as amps so and getting down to london would be impossible because uh, you know just kind of i think i was a student you know i think elaine worked for the libraries and everyone else is on the dole you know so uh we, it was just kind of a little bit uh, too far away for us to get to i might as well be on the moon but he, he figured out um, you could just use uh, an outside studio and uh, um, Stuart Cruikshank from uh, BBC Scotland came in and kind of uh, produced it for us. So I, I think people have told us it's the first time that um, they had bands outside of Vale since uh, The Undertones. I think he did the same thing for, for The Undertones over in uh, Ireland. So we um, were kind of quite kind of bold over to hear that. And I don't know if that's true or not. So don't quote me on it, but people have told us that. So yes. Well,
0: oh, there I've you no go. Idea. And and you are one of those bands who did four John Peel sessions, which, you know, it's pretty impressive, you know, to have that many to, um, yes, remember, be archived, I suppose. it's That's the thing, isn't it? You know, because it's because a lot of people who've done a John Peel session often before then, their uh, time in, you know, studios was sort of a bit hit and miss and. They weren't always pleased with the you know the end result, but having a John Peel session in, in sort of with a producer, which often in the eighties, especially, was always Dale Griffith, who was the uh, a member of Mott the Hoop. So, um, were you ple- particularly pleased with your um, final kind of output of those um, four four sessions?
1: Oh, oh yeah, yeah. I mean, the first one's great because it's, it's good just working with with Stuart Cruikshank. He's a really, really great guy, and that's how we met him. it was just kind of nice to kind of uh, come into contact with him. Uh, I think we we'd kind of re- recorded the um songs that were on our first EP, like the 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 day before or something like that, and compared to the uh, the quality of the songs we did on the, on the Peel session it was just you know rubbish in comparison, you know but uh, it just helps to have somebody in a, in a decent studio who knows what they're doing really to, to record you and know, it makes such a difference. Um, but, um, yeah, going on from there that we, we actually did kind of go down and, uh, you know, get to made of veil eventually when we became a touring band and, um, you know the, the the producers there, like you're saying, they're all these kind of guys from like the the 70s, basically recording these old fantastic Neve desks, you know, with the kind of two inch tape, and just kind of they've recorded David Bowie in there, they've recorded Mot The Hoople in there, you know, all the all the kind of um, big bands of kind of uh, you know of 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 the olden times have been in there, and the, and the sound they get off it, it's just this kind of great kind of you know Mickey Most sort of
0: sound, it's fantastic. Yes, well absolutely It's always exciting And I suppose, you know, you, you've got that history, history and heritage I think there was a couple of bands I spoke to Where they didn't have a great time Because I think they got into a bit of a fight With various producers Who weren't impressed with their sort of um, Lack of ability, I suppose, isn't it? Because you also worked with um, Yeah, you didn't or Did you ever do any with Dale Griffiths? by the way? <laughs>
1: i think we did actually yeah it's uh, i'd have to go back and kind of check the kind of um the kind of notes we have but uh I, I know there was kind of guys in there that we'd kind of um you know did sessions whether it's saying oh yeah yeah when i when i did this with uh you know boy we did it this way and we're going oh my god you know it's like almost too scared to ask any further questions because that was a uh, people who'd uh, been with like real musicians you know it seemed to be like uh, on a different level from us and completely.
0: Did you we, did, I was. I was wondering, were you having slight sort of existential moments of think God, we could get found out and be told to leave the room?
1: Well, to be honest, we, we, we just kind of like looked at it on as this kind of different kind of level uh, entirely. I mean, we were just this kind of we kind of scrappy kind of uh, idiots who came in and just kind of knocked something out and as long as we're happy with it, we're fine, but we didn't kid ourselves on that we were at any sort of same sort of level as uh you know proper musicians you know like yeah. fergus only one who ever came near to be honest you know he was like a proper you know he, he knew how to play guitar the rest of us are just kind of basically learning as we went along i mean yes. elaine just kind of learned bass i mean she kind of played a bit of guitar you know in school and uh, ian as i said he was actually quite a good guitarist Ian, but um he, he he just learned drums as he went along you know so so most of us were just kind of figuring it out as we
0: went but yes. we just
1: uh, Didn't we take ourselves seriously as musicians or anything like that?
0: Because having spoke to a lot of bands from the last three years about that, you know, especially mostly the the 80s bands, they do have this five-year narrative, you know, where they get together. And mostly during that early 80s period were on, you know, I would say a lot of them were unemployed and either uh, claiming Job Seekers Allowance or on the Enterprise Allowance Scheme, which was a sort of thing that you could be um, self-employed for a year as long as you could prove you had a £1,000 in the bank account, which is always a bit odd because it's like, how did you manage to get thousand pounds but they didn't ask too many questions you basically you were taken off the dole num- unemployment numbers and that was good enough for the the government of the time yeah. and um, and then sort of there wasn't much on and actually there was no kind of career progression so being in the band at least gave most people a bit of self esteem and then you know a john peel play in a john peel session that that kind of created the first album which was always very exciting and then there was the tricky second album which most bands didn't survive and if anybody ever toured America it seemed to be the absolute kiss of death so how did you, you sort of manage to sort of go beyond that five-year period? In fact, you went from the, the John Major government through to New Labour, which was very impressive, actually, because everyone else was stuck with the Thatcher years in the 80s. So, so with your own sort of, um, yes, narrative, how did that develop? Um,
1: I think it's all kind of down to Sheer really. Um, they a record company. They, they were kind of quite... Um, supportive of us i guess i mean you'd expect them to be but uh, you know any bands and bigger labels are going to basically get one chance and if it's wrong then that's you out the door you know but we we very much wanted to be with a smaller label and just basically kind of try and grow a little bit over the years try and learn and grow um did they would kind of sort out tours for us and um you know hotels things like that you know we didn't have a manager in so we we had no idea what we're doing and it was just thanks to kind of them to look after us a wee bit and kind of you know book us tours and things Uh, it started off just so so amateurish you know but it was was helpful because there was nothing really expected of us rather than we sell a decent amount of records and and, you know keep going and bring some money in yes um, that seemed to be okay them i mean where, where things kind of went wrong for us later on in in uh, our, our so-called career was that the fact that kind of um major labels got involved and uh, we just knew that would kind of be the kiss of death but we, we didn't have any way to stop that you know it's uh it was a decision made at, at, at their end at the end of the day um a kind of development deal which basically meant stop developing
0: right because i've never come well wow. I don't know much about share records. So what were their did they sort of run but were they basically running between the years that you were in sort of operation?
1: yeah yeah uh, i mean she is the kind of formed of um, nick from cherry red he, he was with them uh, to start off with or sh- sorry Cherie records should i say i think that's an offshoot at of cherry red wasn't it but mm-hmm. um them and uh, uh vanita who was kind of uh, the, the person we always kind of stayed at her house when we were down in london she's she's doing um a, a new record label now rocket girl uh, that can kind i of put out our kind of appeal sessions record um Yeah, there was like four of them and they they basically kind of um, handled all aspects of, uh, you know, sort of uh, making the records and booking tours for us and kind of uh, uh, basically, uh, yeah, all that kind of stuff, you know.
0: Yes. And, And when you sort of you did the first album, which was 86, did that sort of come together quite sort of straight, you know, quite easily?
1: Uh, yeah, well, it was just kind of basically tunes we were kind of um, kind of playing around, uh, and uh, you know we put like, in a kind of series of singles out, and I kind of felt really strongly how I wanted the first album just to be a uh, the stories so far sort of thing, you know. So we kind of had a whole bunch of singles from there on it, and um, you know the rest of the set that we were doing. Um, maybe to every song that we we used to play, we'd have on this on this record. A lot of them were kind of quite new at the time when we when we actually recorded them. But did it with um, John Rivers uh, down in Leamington Spa. Um, I think that the, the Passels had done their first album there, and he'd recorded Felt and uh, Nicky Sudden. You know, yeah, uh, you know, from later from Swell Maps and things. So uh, yeah, it was kind of good to go down there. We kind of had this kind of um, whole kind of uh, experience of being like two weeks in a residential studio in Leamington Spa and uh, kind of it's funny like the the only um, they they had this kind of like a little room where we go into um, to live in and kind of hang out and after we'd kind of like finished recording had a a Betamax uh, uh, video recorder there Um, the only thing that was kind of left to to watch there was really fittingly uh, a copy of The Shining everything else had kind of been taped over so many times uh, that that was the only thing we had to watch so uh, that kind of fitted the vibe kind of quite well
0: (laughs) Were you all going slightly mad?
1: Yeah, exactly, as the Overlook could tell really except we were recording during the daytime so uh, a lot lot of red rum
0: (laughs) Yes, God, it must start to um... Yeah, so how was the, the, the dynamic within the band at that stage? Were you on a sort of honeymoon period still?
1: Yeah, okay, we're just all buddies, you know, like uh, that was the whole point of being in the band. It was a kind of kind of little social event, really. You just kind of go and kind of, um, you know, d- write some daft tunes and kind of go and play them with people. And um, at that point, it was starting to get kind of um, a bit bigger going on tours and people were kind of actually really into it, you know. Um, so it kind of felt like we were kind of on a pretty upward trajectory at that time. People seemed to be liking our, what we were doing. So I think we were all just dead confident, really, you know. Um, I don't know if it was justified, but it, it doesn't really matter to a certain extent. No. We were just kind of enjoying what we were doing. Uh it was it was exactly what we wanted to do. So think, uh just...
0: Cuz I was talking to a member from Bis and she was saying, so it was obviously the fit the woman in the band, she said that unfortunately they never really enjoyed their time of success because there were so many personal di- you know, problems and she would, you know, being in a relationship and that was breaking down and falling, you know, they were sort of like basically separating within being in a band so you're basically working with each other 24 7 so you know it's like god we didn't have a good time which is you know looking back on it i think they all go god i wish we just enjoyed it but you obviously having the opposite you were having fun and enjoying yourselves
1: yeah i mean obviously it's quite hard being with people like all the time you know uh, and when you're in a a touring band you know that you're you're basically um god how to how to describe this you, you've got to think you play a gig and you're emotionally exhausted at the end of it because you're jumping around you're bashing your guitar off the wall you're doing handstands in the crowd whatever it is you're doing you give absolutely everything uh, and act like an idiot in front of a whole bunch of people and it's really hot and sweaty but you've also got the kind of um, load in and load out you've also got to get back to to glasgow to wherever it is you're storing your uh, your gear and you're probably unloading that at five in the morning and then again the next day you're, you're doing it again uh and it, it's quite hard going. It explains why uh, people who are the age of like kind of four or 50 probably shouldn't be in bands. You've really got to be kind of young and stupid and resilient to actually do it. It's, uh, it's amazing that kind of so many bands can do it for so long without going absolutely mental and kind of like killing each other. But you can see where the kind of pressure arises and all that. And I can only imagine what it'd be like to be with your you know boyfriend or girlfriend and kind of falling out at, at, at that period of time. Uh, it would be it'd be horrible. It would but, be. It, um,
0: it's basically Fleetwood Mac, but an in, indie version, really, isn't it?
1: So that's the go betweens, though, isn't
0: it? <laughs> that is also yes. The go betweens. I know. I know. I did an interview with Lindy. It was a bit tricky at times. Kind of. I did mention the Fleetwood Mac thing, and she was like. Yeah, you'll have to listen to the interview. She starts to get quite annoyed with me. It's kind of funny, but uh, (laughs) (laughs) I've had quite a few comments like, my God, you were taken to the cleaners on that one. But it was like, wow, that's fair enough. Uh, (laughs) I don't know. I didn't think I was being original, but I I sort of thought, God, that dynamic between the, the four of them was quite extraordinary. The bass player just could keep out of the way, Robert Vickers. Tricky, yeah. tricky times. Yeah. But then how, how did you sort of follow up with your second album? Because this was this the one that you decided to go on to a major label? Well, we never
1: really made the decision. Uh, it, it was just part of like Shea's kind of like um, business plan. Uh, and we just kind of went along with it. So, well, what the hell? You know, we don't really, you know, we're kind of happy with Shea as, as a label. And uh, we'll just trust them to have made the right decision. It did kind of like hold everything up by a year every time we did an album. So it didn't really work out too good for us. But um, we did get to kind of go in and uh, record at Ray Davis Studio in in London. Uh, that was good fun doing. It just seemed to be, you know, getting into kind of uh, better places, really. But I, I don't know if that kind of actually kind of is any better.
0: <coughs> yes. At
1: the end of the day, you know, it's like sometimes just better just to kind of do something in a kind of really cheap studio. And I know that's kind of what, what my business plan would have been. if if we'd had complete control over it but you know our whole thing was like we we were massively in the stereo lab when we started uh, and we just thought that whole idea of them having their label putting their singles out you know trying to kind of grow it that kind of that way uh, and just basically having an outlet for you know what you wanted to kind of record is the best way to do it and we kind of thought we would do it that way if we ever had the money to ever start it but we never really had uh, the ability to, to put together a business plan or, or get funding or, you know, we, we didn't have like kind of an inheritance to, to to start on. You know, we, uh, we were th- talking seriously of robbing a bank at one point, but um, we didn't think that was really a, a good idea. So we ended up having to kind of like sign and you're, you're basically once you're, you know, with a label, you have to kind of trust them that they, they know what they're doing. Um, so um, I, I guess we kind of um, ended up in the arms of Sire at, at that point. Uh, which did slow
0: things down a lot Yes, it's always tricky It's a rock and hard place Because it's one of the things that I think catches a lot of bands out And it's all that sort of publishing and ownership of music And, and having trying to navigate that Because I have heard some horrendous stories Where people have signed sort of a record deal for 1P They were drunk at the time, you know And um, they signed it and then that was it They never saw a royalty check they, they, they. They're, yeah. they're still sort of emotionally tortured by that experience.
1: And you think. At some point, you wonder where all the money went, you know. But um, you keep in mind that you know when you're in a band, you're a musician or, or a so-called musician. You you don't do it to make money. It, music costs money. It, it doesn't earn people money, or at least it doesn't earn the people who actually make it money. Uh, and once you're kind of like happy with that, you just enjoy having the fun of it. You know, that's kind of really kind of all it is at the end of the day. And uh, if you can come out with it with some really good recordings that you've got kind of preserved on a slab of vinyl, then I mean, what more do you really need?
0: Yes. Well, I know that uh, speaking to a member of the Delgados. I mean, they started their own label as well as running a band, which just seems quite extraordinary at the time.
1: That is an extraordinary kind of effort to actually have (laughs) the business side of things covered as well. If you think about it, you've you've got to do your T-shirts, you've got to do your record covers, you've got to write the songs, you've got to practice the songs, you've got to play the songs, you've got to go on tour. You know, you can't can't do all of it. and, And, you know, well done to them to actually kind of making the extra, kind of actually starting their label and doing it seriously.
0: Yes, that was, um, yeah, because I know you mentioned Sarah Records at the beginning and having spoke to Matt and Claire from the label, I mean, neither of them had a clue about record labels and they had to sort of find out what an invoice was and they're thinking, wow, you really did start at the beginning, didn't you, and um, sort of have to sort of do do it, but Sarah Records, you know, did sort of have such a great ethos and its kind of legacy is quite extraordinary because at the time I think it got sort of slightly sort of ridiculed by certain members of the music press, but now we look back and think, God, actually, they did really well. And it's a great label. Well, people
1: bought the records and people were into the ethos. And uh, I don't know, sometimes you've got to kind of look at it as if you're annoying the right people and you're doing something right.
0: Yes, annoy the enemy. So look, then you had your big single, Hello Tiger. Did that surprise you when that came out and hit the charts?
1: (laughs) It kind of glanced off the charts. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, that was was a good uh, tour, that one. Um, She had kind of like set up a kind of... um, you know we'd play afternoons in kind of like virgin mega stores and then uh, they'd put us behind a desk and we'd like sign records uh, it was really totally kind of uh commercial like being in a big proper band you know it was funny like uh, it was so embarrassing being stone cold sober and people coming up and asking to to sign a record and usually because i designed the covers as well i go all right i'll just scroll over and ruin this cover that i've thought about for you know probably hours on end but um, that's absolutely fine. Once the kind of um, the redneck kind of died down a little bit, it was okay. You just had to kind of think, well, these, you know, people are come along because they like your band and thank God for that, you know. Uh, evening we'd kind of play um, in a kind of more kind of regular kind of uh, gig environment where we could at least have a couple of pints to kind of uh, calm us down before we went on. And, uh, you know, I think midweek, uh, we were something like uh, number 15 or something like that, because someone came and told us that, like an idiot. And we got all excited about it and then it got to the end of the week and someone said, oh, we forgot, it's Brits week. Everyone's going to go and buy all the all the, all the Brits releases at the weekend. And we thought, oh, oh we might slip a bit. And there's a joke going along. We were going to get kind of um, T-shirts printed up with like a uh, 41 printed on it. You were saying it's a sort of 41 because <laughs> we were sure we we're going to be just outside the chart. And Honestly, if that happened, we would probably just have laughed ourselves sick. It would have been really, really funny. But just to spit in her eye one more time, we were number 40. Oh. What a disappointment. Just in and no more. But uh, we couldn't even get the joke out of it, you know. That's so, so disappointing.
0: <laughs> I know. I, I, I seem to remember a story when Elvis Costello had started. Um, I think he was printed up either badges or T-shirts or something saying Elvis is a stiff. And I think Elvis Presley died quite soon. In that period now, I think they had to to bin bin the lot. (laughs) That was probably about 1977. God, that's um, 42 years ago. Now, so as you were trundling through the decade and we definitely were into a new labour period, were you beginning to feel the pace, the strain of being in the bank? Because you'd been in it for quite a few years now, hadn't you? you've gone beyond that five-year narrative which is quite something and also the other thing that I I sort of realize looking back without trying to be too sentimental about these things and nostalgic but um, apart from like people like John Peel you had that great you know the gatekeeper and the NME which was also had you know 100,000 copies a week especially in the 80s I'm not sure you know that 90s but you also had all these clubs in every city didn't you like Norwich had the Arts Centre and then you had Bristol and Brighton and, and Manchester, Liverpool, Glasgow, Leeds, etc., etc., et cetera. And so everybody, you know, there was like these little venues of that would hold two, three hundred people who you almost guaranteed to get an audience of pasty faced indie kids lacking in vitamin D. And yeah, you, our people. And, and you're, oh people, that was probably me in the crowd a who bit <laughs> on a TV piece diet of vegetarian food Lack, definitely lacking needing to sort of buy get something getting iron tablets probably now so did you play the art center you must have played the art center in North. yeah
1: it played, played it several times um it, we used to love going to play in the art centers um, they, they used to kind of have a really good kind of like stage setups and uh, you'd be able to actually hear yourself on stage in a lot of places we play' be kind of little kind of um you know basement rooms with kind of sweat dripping off the ceiling you know which is fun in its own way but it's sometimes nice to get on what's an actual stage and be able to hear yourself that's a nice little change
0: yes and I I must admit I I don't know if you ever played any of the wild clubs wild club nights which were at the art center but they used to often have three or four bands on so for about two pound 50p it could have even been 350 by the time you were playing you know you got to see a lot of music for you you know for your pound, so that was good, and it also sort of gave people a new a new audience and and the ability to sell at least ten t shirts
1: oh yeah, yeah, those ten t shirt sales could come in pretty useful to our band,
0: <laughs> yes, for petrol so then when you when you were coming towards the end of the decade, did you feel the band what was the writing on the wall that it was going to sort of come to an end
1: Oh, we we got slowed down so much just by um you know desire being involved uh to be honest, you know it was um kind of a lot of the kind of momentum came off because we kind of always put an extra year in between every album. You know, we'd have an album ready to go and it'd be like delays. So I think uh, we probably should have had about five albums out in, in the time that we were kind of going. But uh, obviously we never really kind of got to do that. Um, so you know we would, every year our kind of um our, our kind of so-called career would be kind of uh, derailed so the fact that we kept going as long as we could and that was kind of uh, you know kind of quite good going um the last record we had um like Sarah just kind of took so ages about it. Um, We got to kind of record with uh, Bryce Goggins, which is kind of really kind of good fun and everything, but we had this record ready to go for ages and it wasn't coming out and then they kind of decided they they didn't want to do it. I think um, Seymour Stein had a a, a big thing going at the time where he was um, basically on thin ice at Sire. Uh, I think his answer to that was to kind of sign 200 bands and throw them at the wall and kind of see who stuck. So uh, there really wasn't any kind of like um, overseeing of the career that we, we had at Shea, it was kind of out of their hands, even though we were still kind of like primarily kind of dealing with them. Um, so we basically uh, decided, OK, we're going to put this album out ourselves and uh, kind of got the rights to do that off them, kind of put it out in a very kind of low key sort of way. And actually made a profit of it That's the first time we'd ever kind of got any money From any music we'd ever put out So we felt that was a kind of major kind of uh, victory to retire on Yes so we, uh, Yeah, I decided to kind of call it quits after that I think we'd uh, probably been together doing music For almost 10 years at that point And just thought, well, yeah, that's, that's plenty, that'll do
0: Yes, and it sounds like you got to the point Where you weren't all about to kill each other And you could walk away with quite sort of, you know
1: yeah, so, I think murder is probably beyond us all, really. You know, I think a slappy fight is probably the most you ever get out of us.
0: Yeah, so so, so did you have a moment where you all sat down and said, shall we just give it, you know, put it to bed now?
1: Um, yeah, I don't think we ever kind of had a... We, we did have a sit down at one point, I think, but uh, it was mostly me just going like, I, I, I'm just not going to do it anymore. I think that's, that's as far as it can go. Exhausted, let's go do something else. I think my, my whole thing was like, if I, I never hear an hour record again, it'll be too soon. It's, uh you know, it kind of puts you through the mill a little bit, going through all the, all the kind of stuff that you have to go through to, to be in a band. So it was good to have a little break from that.
0: Yes. And then what happened to you when the band finished? Did you, because I can't remember, did you go and do solo material?
1: N- no, I had a little kind of... Um, I kind of went back to kind of doing things in the studio just for fun, just to kind of play. Uh, but but we never kind of got to the stage of actually kind of doing things in front of people. I think, to, to be honest, it was something I didn't really kind of seriously want to do. So um, we did that for a few months uh, and then I basically kind of just, just stopped for a while. Uh, it was kind of about five years before I went to kind of be in a band after that. So we, we, we started a, kind of another kind of um, rehearsal room band. And, and then um, after a few years, then, I did a few gigs here and there. And this is something that's been kind of going on ever since, really. It's uh, really uh, just what I call a secret band, you know, just to kind of do kind of like, you know, fun stuff in secret and every now and then kind of put something out on the internet or kind of do like a gig when no one's expecting it and uh, no one really knows about it. So it's uh, something that I kind of find a little bit kind of uh, more kind of What would you call it? I don't know, off-piste? I don't know Just Something that's just off the kind of tracks of um, what people do as a kind of band, as a career It's just really just just for for funsies, you know
0: Yes, so your, your sort of love of music hasn't sort of faded too much It's just kind of gone into the undergrowth
1: well, I really kind of uh, had a reaction against noisy music after being in a, in a noisy band uh, for so long. I, I kind of I really want to kind of have a, a very kind of understated, kind of quiet music. Uh, I discovered low and thought, I, I just want to listen to music like this from now on. You know, so this has got to be really, really quiet and really kind of slow. And that's all I really want to hear. Uh, Kind of my efforts to make music of that sort kind of didn't really come to very much, so uh, it was never really kind of like going to be a, a kind of uh path to kind of putting out music for myself, but that, that's the thing I wanted to listen to, so uh, kind of just really kind of um kind of went more in that sort of direction, very very quiet,
0: yes. And most um, and so the idea of bands reforming is often sort of not great and sometimes quite hideous. But um, as a fan, you never sort of, oft, you often don't want a band to reform, but you would like to know that the members occasionally sort of meet up at Christmas and are still kind of friends with each other. And obviously being a huge Smiths fan, that was once the dream, but that's no more. That's gone, that dream, hasn't it? Well, but, well,
1: well Morrissey died in 1990, as far as I'm concerned. He's, he's, um, he, he went, that was tragic, uh, but he left behind a, a, a glistening, perfect career. <laughs> you know, um, I don't know who the guy afterwards was, but it's just some, you know, tribute act. It
0: was. Actually, that's a really good thing. I'm going to remember that, actually, because having to try and deal with that is just quite difficult. Um, so do you sort of as as sort of a, as old bandmates occasionally sort of bump into each other and have a drink?
1: I, I feel we sort should probably do something like on that Simpsons episode, you know, like when they go and uh, perform in uh, Top of Moe's cafe, uh, Mo's Mo's Cafe, Mo, Mo's Bar, um, just just doing a kind of like a, a, a selection of songs, but in a cappella format. You know, maybe we could do something like that. Yes. We we're all pretty obsessed with The Simpsons back at that time, so that would probably be very fitting. Should really kind of try and figure that out, like a, a kind of barbershop version of Hello Tiger or kind of uh, Death to Everyone. That could be good.
0: <laughs> yes, I'm sure that would be that would be a nice way to do it. And what would you say to an eighteen year old, your eighteen year old self, starting out in that? That interest and sometimes murky world that is music. I just wondered if there was something that you, over the years and decades, and you thought, God, actually, I have I have wisdom through experience, and this is what I have. This is what I would tell myself or anybody if they would listen.
1: Um. Oh God, it's probably all business stuff. Do you know what I mean? That I mean, I, I'm I'm often surprised thinking back. at sometimes I, I didn't uh, think to ask. Uh, who was looking after us. Uh, did you get did you get paid for that gig? Did you remember ask the guy for the money? Uh, I'd never asked that question because it would just meant nothing to me. All I wanted to do was kind of go and play some music in front of people and jump around and have a really good time. Uh, the whole money thing was completely secondary. Uh, but still, I think, looking back, that's probably the right attitude to have because you're never going to make any money anyway. If you're doing it for that, you're doing it for the wrong reasons. Do it for the... The item, you know, the the, the seven inch single, do it for the the, the album, do it for the laugh, playing on stage, because that's what's going to last. The money will be spent. It doesn't matter. As long as you've got enough to carry on, that's all that really matters. So uh, I I don't think I would have done anything different going back, to be honest. And I think the fact that I didn't care about it to that extent is probably a good thing.
0: Yes, well, I think that's um, that's kept you from being bitter and twisted, and you didn't get hit with some amazing tax bill that made everyone go, "Oh, that's interesting." It was. No, it, no, it was quite so a,
1: no. if people listen to this uh, podcast and kind of come up with a uh, you know a bill for us, uh, just to be known, it's all gone, we didn't get anything. Uh, we can probably prove it. I don't know. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, no, I mean, I'm sure after decades that it definitely wasn't anything. Yeah, well, I think just one or two bands probably got caught out with some. Poor management and poor, poor accountant skills. Anyway, look, well, I'm pleased to eventually get, um, yes, to get hold of you and uh, set up a day. But this has been fantastic, and so grateful that you give me the time for this interview, Graham. Because um, otherwise, it would, I've I would have felt like you know somehow sort of had sort of missed an important um, yes, band, and artist actually. haven't oh, sort of okay. having, having sort of I've, I've, from from the Bay City Rollers, less from them to. Richard from the Skids and even a member of uh, Big Country and then Delgado's and those other indie bands I mentioned. I sort of thought, you know, being one of those people who've become a bit of a completist, you think, ah, that would be really bad. The one person I haven't managed to track down, of well, I have, it's uh, the Pastels, Stephen from the Pastels, actually, who's, whose occasion says, mm, I'm not sure at the moment. You know, contact me in a year's time. It's like, oh, mm, fair enough. And obviously the 53rd and 3rd records. God, what happened to Alan Horn?
1: yeah well if you ever need to kind of speak to steven just kind of come up to glasgow and go into mono um monorail records he, he's, he's usually in there um, he's usually quite happy to have a chat so uh, you might not want to be recorded but you know you can definitely catch up
0: oh good good i know and alan horn has anyone ever seen him since
1: I have n- never seen him, but I, you know, I, I walk past his uh, um, his house every uh, day walking in work uh, on on West Princess Street, and I always kind of turn around and, and look at the the number and go, "Postcard Records." That's basically <laughs> the, the the first area I lived when I moved to Glasgow. was around the corner from there, and uh, we kind of started up our own kind of pseudo record label there as well, and kind of thought we were kind of like um, following in the footsteps. So it kind of um, feels like a little special area there.
0: God, he's like the Phil Spector, isn't he? He's just that sort of behind those curtains. He's a genius.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's the thing. I don't know. I don't know where Alan Horn is now, but I mean, all, all these guys from kind of Glasgow kind of music scene, you could be sitting talking to them in the pub and they probably wouldn't tell you they put out your favourite record. You know, like uh, everyone's just kind of so kind of blasé about it. And, uh, you know, if you're not good at recognising people, you're, you're just never going to know you spoke to a living legend
0: yes this is true anyway look graham thank you ever so much this has been brilliant and i'll tell you when i put it out and that'll be cool
1: ah oh, great well yeah thanks very much for kind of being interested you know it's, uh, it's always uh, fun to to talk to people who want to hear about the band
0: yes well look that's great and have a lovely midwinter and christmas and new year and all that kind of stuff let's hope the next decade is a good one who knows
1: yeah it's got to start getting better soon hasn't it <laughs>
0: god <laughs> Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> well,
1: if if, if um, Scotland is independent in the next couple of years, you'll have to kind of move up here. Uh, everyone is uh, welcome here. Uh, yes, this is true. Just, just move up your score if you want to be.
0: <laughs> I know this is. I know it'll be like but what Berlin was like when it was still that. Um, the wall was up where, you know, because you, I think you had to do national service if you were in Germany. But if you went to Berlin, you could get away from being national service. So it sort of obviously attracted a lot of people who um, were a bit sort of alternative and all that kind of stuff. And um, I suppose Scotland could be the same, actually. It'd be like, no, we're going to be part of Europe. And it's like, oh, OK, we'll all move.
1: Yeah, well, if it's another uh, Iggy Pop point to kind of move up here, then uh, Yeah. Please, please come along.
0: We will. You're welcome. This is good. Anyway, look, have a great day. And um, yes, I'll keep in touch. But thanks again. And I'm so pleased you came to Norwich several times. It's good. I love Norwich.
1: Played there loads. Uh, I totally remember playing in the Arts Centre. It used to be a great gig.
0: <laughs> yes. Cool. OK. Thanks a lot, Graham. See you later. Cheers. Bye.
1: Bye